right after that, that's like that, um, the paragraph where he talks about stories coming to nothing. Um, he mentions if the un universe is so bad, this is a direct quote or even half so bad, how on earth did human beings ever come to attribute it to the activity of a wise and good creator? And I think my cat is, uh, meowing here. In the background, <laughs> yeah. So I apologize for that. I'll leave that in for, uh, some, some character. Hi, my name is Ben DeVries, and welcome to another episode of A Corner of the River. This is the second part of an ongoing discussion on the problem of evil that I'm having uh, with my brother, Josh. Josh, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, for sure. It was a great uh, first discussion last time, and today we will be cracking open uh, the problem of pain, which will kind of be a, uh, a guide to our conversation uh, for the rest of the series. And we're going to be hopefully looking at the preface and the first couple of chapters, depending how far we get. Uh, before we get into uh, the actual pages of the book, I thought I'd give a little bit of background on this book, uh, much of which I'm actually thankful to the Wade Center and uh, a recent uh, couple of podcast episodes that they had on the problem of pain. And I will definitely link to those in the show notes. But uh, they reminded that this was actually one of Lewis's very first books and his first book of apologetics. It was actually part of a series called The Christian Challenge, which he was invited to participate in. And the book was first published in 1940. And I believe they said that he actually read it to the Inklings. Uh, they often read uh, works in progress to each other, which was pretty cool. Uh, but he read it, I believe, the year before in 1939 to that group. Crystal Downing, uh, she's one of the co-directors of the Wade Center, along with her husband, David Downing. And I thought she had a really great uh, take on Lewis using the term pain rather than evil in the title of this book. Uh, and she said, I like Lewis's title better because trying to explain evil just puts it in a more, puts it more in a metaphysical conversation. Whereas pain, we all know pain. We've all experienced pain. And then to draw theological insights out of that is so profound. And I thought that was very well said. It, it always kind of struck me as curious that he chose that term pain rather than evil. Um, did you have a similar reaction, Josh? Um, I guess I hadn't thought so much about why he chose a title, but I, you know, I, I've, it's, it seems that he is, um, seeing evil as a subset of pain in general. Um, you know, some pain can be caused naturally. Um, I mean, there's, there is always a question of, you know, what do we do with the natural pain that we experience, natural disasters, cancers, all that sort of thing. Um, that's part of the experience of human suffering. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, I guess all evil leads to an experience of pain uh, for for humans. Um, at least, you know, uh, there's natural evil that we might might not experience that's inflicted only on animals or parts of the natural world. But, but yeah, most evil, much of evil, does result in us experiencing um, 
whether uh, psychologically or physically, spiritually, or all of the above, experiencing pain. Um, and it is an interesting take, mm-hmm. a bit more of a relatable world word, uh, whereas evil can kind of be as big and as abstract as uh, we'd like it to be sometimes. Uh, another interesting quote was shared by a man named Jerry Root, who's a professor at uh, Wheaton College and was also part of that podcast. He shared a quote a little bit into the first episode uh, in their discussion of this book. Uh, the quote was actually from Lewis's um, sermon, The Weight of Glory. And the quote is, if our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. And that was actually kind of an encouraging quote for me. Uh, we, we talked a lot in the first episode about how pain can kind of blindside us or just kind of take over uh, the problem of evil, that is a uh, problem of pain, can kind of take over our consciousness and awareness and leave us kind of struggling for to know which way is up where to go with uh, certain experiences of pain or evil. I mentioned uh, taking in, you know, the Ukraine invasion and there are other examples, many millions, billions of examples beyond that for each of us. Um, But it was just, uh, was a a positive take to say, this is something worth exploring. There might be something there that that God is hoping to show us uh, almost certainly not a uh, you know complete answer to the problem of evil, uh, but something there that we can learn a- about reality, about God, about a relationship to God, about humanity, and I found that very encouraging. Mm-hmm. So, in the preface, Lewis is very honest. He says he was not; it was not in the um, the vein of the series or the ethos of it for him to write it anonymously, which he actually did um, with his later book, A Grief Observed, although I think it wasn't long before people knew it was Lewis who wrote that book. And I'm sure we'll come back to that again at some point, uh, the experience of um, losing his wife uh, late in life. But um, he said, aside from that, he wanted to be clear and his publisher suggested, I think, even that he just acknowledge how he does not live up to some of the lofty ideas of what he calls fortitude in the book. Um, he says he's experienced pain and is afraid of pain. No one can accuse him, accuse him of not uh, being aware of pain or what it is or how much it can hurt. Uh, in fact, I was reminded as well through that podcast and I think something else I listened to not too long ago that Lewis uh, did in fact experience quite a, quite a substantial amount of pain and grief in his um, formative years. He lost his mother uh, as a young boy. Uh, he was bullied at a private school, which he discusses uh, in his autobiography of the early part of his life called Surprised by Joy. And he actually uh, participated in World War I and uh, was was wounded there. And I was looking for a little more detail on that. And I came across an article on the C.S. Lewis Institute titled C.S. Lewis on War and Peace. And I'll share a link to this as well. But he was actually sent to the front lines 
in France uh, in 1917. And after a few weeks, uh, he was uh, put in the hospital he, uh, due to trench fever. And then the, the article quotes, uh, recording the article, when he was discharged, discharged from the hospital, he immediately returned to the front lines where three months later he was wounded in three places by an exploding shell that killed the sergeant standing next to him. Mm. I think that was from a biography of uh, Sayer, some of those details on Lewis. And uh, they, continuing to quote this article, Lewis was to carry these experiences with him the rest of his life, including a piece of shrapnel lodged in his chest, which was not removed until the next war, which he did not participate in. In 1944, when it seemed to be working its way dangerously close to his heart, and it's been a little while since I've read *Surprised by Joy*, and uh, I um, pulled up. I guess there's a few pages where he kind of discusses his experience of the war, and there was an interesting couple of lines um, that that stood out to me. But for the rest, the war, the frights, the cold, the smell of H.E. And I, I meant to look that up, but I forgot. I wonder if that was like the mustard gas or something along those lines. Hmm. Uh, but he says the horribly smashed men still moving like half crushed beetles, the sitting or standing corpses, the landscape of sheer earth without a blade of grass, the boots worn day and night till they seem to grow to your feet. All this shows rarely and faintly in memory. It is too cut off from the rest of my experience and often seems to have happened to someone else. And even with him saying that, it clearly left a uh, massive impression um, on him as it would on anyone. But anyway, that's just a little bit of introductory background to the book. Um, and uh, I think I, in, in the preface itself, he also says that he's, he's being clear. He's only trying to address the problem of evil, of problem of pain from an intellectual or rational perspective. And he also hopes that aside from a couple of chapters uh, at the end of the book, where he admits to some speculation, and I think either or both touch on animals as well, uh, that he he believes what he's writing about and teaching, hopes it to be and believes it to be in line with Christian orthodoxy, uh, confessional Christianity. Uh, any other thoughts on the first couple pages of that preface, Josh? No, I, I think, um, yeah, I think you nailed it. Cool. And we, you actually pointed us to one of the best quotes, uh, maybe in the entire book, but it was in that preface. Uh, you mentioned it in our first episode where he says, um, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified, nor have I anything to offer my readers except my conviction that when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than knowledge, a little human sympathy more than courage, more than much courage and the least tincture of the love of God more than all. So it's a very humble way to start um, a book and, and quite a quite a good book at that. So in chapter one, uh, we should acknowledge, we were talking about this briefly before we started recording, these, these two books can be a little tough sledding from an intellectual perspective. Um, how did you describe it again? Oh, how did I describe it? Um, kind of, I, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's definitely, uh, especially the second chapter. Yeah, seems to kind of dive into metaphysics. 
Um, yeah. So it is very, uh, yeah, it's a very intellectual approach. He wasn't kidding when, when he said that this is what it would be, at least so yeah. far. Yeah, and as I remember, it gets maybe a little bit more real to day-to-day life as the book goes on, or maybe to more commonly taught uh, um, Christian theology, but uh, uh, it's possible that these might be two of the, if not the heaviest uh, chapters, but they do, uh, um, it struck me, they do have some real moments of clarity for us uh, lesser mortals uh, when it comes to (laughs) these types of this, this heavy sledding with philosophy and theology um, has some real, real poignant moments, even so. And I think there's a lot more to be gleaned as the book goes on. But the gist of the first chapter is he's actually trying not to um, give away the, the ending um, spoiler alert of this chapter, but he, he's trying to basically tell us what the problem of pain is and how it's even possible to have a problem of pain. And so he's taking some pain, <laughs> no uh, pun intended, uh, to, to explain uh, his, his take on that. And it has a lot of merit to it. And in, in the uh, prescript to the chapter, he has a quote from Pascal that ends with, um, it is a remarkable fact that no canonical writer has ever used nature to prove God. And I, I think part of what he's responding to is the idea that um, some might tend to think of nature as, at least off the top of their head, as a, a good and beautiful creation that naturally points us to a good and beautiful and loving and caring God. And he's trying to sort of dispel the myth that that's how humanity has typically responded to it. Uh, and that there is good reason that we have not always or typically um, responded to nature in that way. Yeah. And I, I think um, I'm kind of diving into the recesses of my memory here, but I think uh, Lewis's book miracles um, sure. talks the, the earlier chapters, maybe even the very first chapter talks about um, talks about the, nature not being able to prove anything about God one way or the other. Um, at least you're, you're not going to find evidence of, of there being uh, a purely benign or a purely evil God in nature alone. Um, the, you know, nature kind of contains the full gamut of, of everything from what is terrible and seemingly awful to what seems to be sublime. Yeah, for sure. I it's it's been a couple of years. I think I listened to the audio book, but it's that's another weighty book, but an excellent book. Um, I agree. Is is that the book where he talks about kind of gives a, a brief but vivid description of sort of insects, you know, sort of chewing each other's heads off, or it's just sort of the horrors. If if we could see the horrors of the microscopic or insect world, we would be sort of stunned. Um, uh, it, it might be. I don't remember that in particular, but I think he's kind of. He's kind of taking um, naturalist naturalism materialism to task, okay. Um, and I think he's kind of criticizing kind of the maybe the transcendental view, okay, um, sure. of nature or kind of romanticizing nature. Yeah, um, for sure. That, that's what I remember from. And it's interesting because there there probably are people that take that to an extreme, 
uh, through religious or just personal experience or both. Yeah. Um, but I, I find myself, I've thought of that from time to time. I find myself somewhat prone to that as well. It, it is sort of a tension. I I've loved to hike, um, in nature, especially some local forest preserves and some trails along the Des river in particular. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, especially, I think the one where I was kind of explaining how the name, a corner of a river came from, it was actually uh, a little section of the, of the displays River trail in Northeast uh, Illinois. And I find it to be an incredibly calming and peaceful experience. And I, it's meant to be, it, there is incredible beauty and peace in nature. But then I think the little, you know, for example, the little squirrel that's, that scurried across the path or the little bird that's chirping in the trees, you know, is, is a hawk going to get it, uh, later that day yes. or, you know, the next day, or, um, you know, the, the little insects that you just wonder, I think probably reading stuff like you, you, you just mentioned in, in miracles, um, you wonder, you, you know, that nature is not perfect. Uh, there might be baby birds that fall out of a nest and, um, you know, perish, uh, die of, you know, exhaustion or, or, uh, lack of water or get eaten by some other animal. Um, and there is this yeah. entire scene of predation, you know, just behind the beautiful, you know, trees or bushes or, uh, that, that line, um, that line the path. So, um, yeah, there, there's definitely yeah. some tension there, even for us uh, as believers and, and a good God and a good creation. Yeah. And, and Lewis talks about that right at the start of chapter one, he, he um, mentioned several things that um, when he was an atheist um, were examples of arguments he would have given for there not being a loving God. And, and one of the things that, that stood out to me the most was just the vastness and the vast emptiness of space. Yeah. Um, you know, it can be beautiful to look up at the stars, but, it, but to really think about the emptiness that's out there um, can be quite terrifying. And it's, if, yeah. if anything, as Lewis points out, if you're simply comparing, you know, sizes, the size of earth, you know, to the size of the universe, um, you can't help but be overwhelmed with a feeling of utter meaninglessness. And, um, when he talks about, you know, the universe, um, seeming to be running down like a clock running down. And so you run into the problem of, of finitude, everything coming to an end. And, and as, um, as I quoted right before we started this recording, he says, all stories coming to nothing. Um, yeah, so these are some of the examples that Lewis gives, um, with regard to seeing nature from that, um, from that, through that other lens, which, which is just as easily done. Yeah, for sure. He, he talks about, just like you said, the universe being so vast and so mostly dark and cold are a couple words he uses, um, that even you know, if, even if little sections of the universe are populated with life, that it's, it's still hard to think that that's, um, intentional design and not just a, a byproduct, as he says. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And, and, um, this is something similar. It's kind of a tangent, but, um, I remember Chesterton talking about this. Um, I think it may have been in his book, Orthodoxy. Um, but he talks, and I've noticed this too, listening to some um, of the more prominent atheists um, describe um, their view of the universe. Because um, oftentimes when they're debating with, with people of faith, um, 
they they say how they ironically and i think lewis is kind of drawing attention to this they ironically say that they can look up at the stars not believe in a god but still have a sense of awe and wonder at the vastness of it all um and uh, i think what chesterton says in orthodoxy is that if your if your worldview is is essentially one that is ultimately one of meaninglessness uh, if you're kind of stuck in that existential jail so to speak then you know you're no more comforted if you if the warden of that jail tells you that you know the jail is is now no longer simply the building that you're in but it actually extends all the way across the country um it's no less of a jail to you you know what i mean like the 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 size um i don't know if i'm making sense here i wish i had that chesterton quote in front of me um the jail of 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 unbelief or feeling trapped no chesterton is talking about um <clears throat> excuse me um you're basically if, if you leave out the uh the concept of god altogether you as lewis says you you ultimately end up with kind of um a meaningless a meaninglessness that's at the bottom of everything mm -hmm. um so no matter what you do in your life you're stuck in that sort of um prison there's no way out there's no way to find true lasting meaning um beyond your brief blip of an existence okay. because as lewis says all stories will come to nothing so right. you're kind of stuck in an existential jail right um and then for chesterton is making the point that for uh, scientists to be telling us to be in wonder at the vastness of the universe mm -hmm. to a person who's stuck in an existential jail it doesn't really matter how big the universe is um, gotcha. no amount of wonder is going to solve the problem of being in that existential jail <laughs> yeah for sure um, yeah, no, it's, it's not going to it's not ever going to solve the problem of meaninglessness just knowing that the universe is a lot bigger than we previously thought yeah I appreciate you re restating that. I was actually distracted by trying to look up a, a sort of a related quote uh, from G.K. Chesterton, um, where he says the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. Wow. Yeah. And I've, I've heard that off and on. There's there's actually a, uh, a song by Christian singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson. Um, I don't know if it's the title of the song, but um, maybe part of the chorus where he says, don't you want to thank someone just, just sort of looking, looking out around you and, um, much, much better express who his, his song itself. But I always thought that was profound. And I, I'm, I'm almost certain that's a, a nod back to that quote from Chesterton, but yeah, that very much, um, is in the same spirit of what you just described. And I appreciate you, you doing sure. that. And Chesterton was actually a significant influence upon Lewis as well. And I think some yeah. of the other inklings. Yeah. Um, and I, right after that, that's like that, um, the paragraph where he talks about stories coming to nothing. Um, he mentions if the un universe is so bad, this is a direct quote, or even half so bad, how on earth did human beings ever come to attribute it to the activity of a wise and good creator? I think my cat is uh, meowing here in the background, yeah. so I apologize for that. I'll leave that in for uh, some some character. <laughs> she, she's getting elderly and perhaps uh, just a bit senile, so or she might have spotted something outside on the balcony. Um, but yeah, kind of that same, just that same dilemma. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so back uh, going further with that chapter, um, and again, thanks for that, calling that out. Um, he says that, you know, humanity has always known pain and fear. Uh, the animal creatures, the, the less conscious creatures have survived and continue to survive by preying upon each other. Um, there are some vegetarian animals, but uh, there is an awful lot of praying, as we, we talked about, uh, praying with an E, not an A. Um, some of the higher level animals, uh, and we, we find out, we found out more and more and continue to find out more about this, I believe, uh, through scientific research, um, that the higher level animals can actually feel and be aware of pain in ways we didn't uh, expect or kind of took for granted as when people were doing experiments on live animals. In the past, um, I think maybe, maybe Descartes and, and sadly some of that stuff still happens today. Um, and then humans, of course, are conscious and conscious of pain. And that adds a whole other level of fearing pain, of um, experience it, experiencing it intensely on multiple layers. You know, uh, the, the physical sensation, if it's a physical pain, the internal, emotional, spiritual, psychological experience of pain, the dread of it, the, the, rem the memory of it. Um, and I, I, I loved, although it's, it's not a quote to be loved, but his reference to, uh, remembering that for, for most of history, uh, that, and even history of the world's, um, leading largest faiths, religions, uh, was a world without chloroform. And when you just stop to think of that or no anesthetic, uh, um, anesthetic, uh, it just it's just horrifying um makes me have flashbacks to scenes from uh, dances with wolves where they're sawing guys legs off you know with a they're chewing on a rag or a, a um a uh a piece of wood you know and, and um i think it was this was it the civil war that was the the period mm -hmm. of that movie um and that, that's just just one example yeah just absolutely horrifying in fact, some of that was actually happening without uh, medication or at least sufficient medication, perhaps medication at all, even in um, the Abastol, Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, where some of the defenders of Mariupol in Ukraine were holed up. Uh, just just incredible and horrifying to think that that still happens in, in modern times and perhaps in other, very likely in other parts of the world as well. Um, and just one other quick note on that, uh, there was um, a quote that struck me as well. So he says that the history of humanity, quoting, is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror, with just sufficient happiness interposed to give them, while it lasts, an agonized apprehension of losing it, and when it is lost, the poignant misery of remembering. Mm -hmm. Did anything else stand out to you about about that couple pages? I mean, it's it's I can't help but agree, you know, with the, that that assessment. It may not be the whole truth, but it's certainly um, a valid um, way to experience reality. Um, yeah, for sure. So he goes on to ask then how how did 
how did we ever have a concept of the numinous, even if it's not an explicit God or let alone the Christian God or the God of any other modern day religion? But how did we come up with the concept of numinous and, and what is the numinous actually? He says it's not just straight fear or physical fear of the physical, but it's something haunting. Uh, additionally, additional, additional to fear that can definitely be a component of it, but it can be haunting or mysterious. He, he calls it uncanny, something that we wonder at or awe at or, or worship on, on some level, uh, just naturally, automatically, and that we feel insecure around lesser than. He references the quote uh, from Wind in the Willows, which I love, um, such a good book. I remember reading that with my, my older son some years back and hope to do it again with our younger son when he's a bit older. But a, a, perhaps a well-known quote from that book is when Rat and Mole are taking, I believe, a, a river journey in a canoe or, or something along those lines, and they're about to encounter Pan, uh, the mythical creature Pan, and um, it it's, it's a bit of an odd scene. It comes in an odd time in the book, but it's just so beautifully described. Mm -hmm. And uh, the quote that Lewis references, uh, Mole says, rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking, are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, Mole, I am afraid. And isn't there a quote in, um, in the Chronicles of Narnia? that um, yeah that, that reminded me of that yeah yes yeah, badger um mr badger is that his name yeah something um, like that yeah yeah this i think someone asks if aslan is safe yeah exactly and he says um you know safe no he's he's not definitely not safe um, but he's good yes yeah for sure uh, it i don't know if i ever put those two quotes together but i wonder if he was thinking back to the wind in the willows yeah I imagine he was. Yeah. So this, this sense and sort of natural belief in the numinous, it, it's, it's a natural response, but it, 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 it doesn't derive from physical fact or physical fear is, is kind of his claim, Lewis's claim. And he uh -huh. says it's either a mind trick, which even modern and some of our best, uh, what does he say, philosophers, teachers, poets, um, artists, you know, people along those lines, uh, people of faith, pastors, priests, rabbis, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, that many, if not most of these sort of leading examples of modern humanity still can't avoid. Uh, so it's either a mind trick, or it must come from the outside as a form of revelation, uh, in the form of direct encounter with the actual supernatural. Mm -hmm. This is like we said, kind of heavy sledding. It's hard for me to sort of encapsulate. Um, and he is making an argument. Uh, I'm not sure if it completely holds up, but as, as it goes along, it, it does it seem at least seem to be sensible. Um, did you have any thoughts on his concept of the numinous? Um. Yeah, it was a little hard for me to to understand his arguments um, yeah. myself. Um, I, I see what he's saying. I certainly know what he means by having a numinous experience, and that that is definitely a universal thing. Um, and you know, I, th I think there are, at at this point in time, 
um, there would be many out there who say that that, that can even be um, artificially created with the use of psychedelics. And, you know, there's, there's a whole conversation on that. I, I don't know how Lewis would have uh, tackled that one. Um, but it, it is a real phenomenon. And um, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know exactly how you could draw it from the natural environment. Um, other than it would have to be some kind of psychological um, trick of some kind. Uh, but it, it, you know, it, it seems to me that it's, it's more of us encountering the reality um, that we have no categories for. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's hard for me to either wrap my mind around that argument or say that that's a fully solid or provable argument. Right. Because on the one hand, it is such a natural response. Um, yeah, that's, uh, this is a bit beyond me as well, even in, in this moment, trying to encapsulate what he's trying to describe, but that's part of the numinous. Um, but it does sort of lead to those two options. Either it's something that we're, we're just being tricked by and that we continue to come back to as, as human beings, you know, more, much more often than not, I would say that hardcore atheists are by far the exception in our world, uh, no matter what yeah. the faith or what the alternative, even if it's some form of, um, you know, pantheism or broad spirituality, new age spirituality, if you want to call it that, whatever it might be, uh, complete agnosticism or complete atheism is, is by far the exception. So either it is something that we just serves us as human beings evolution from an evolutionary perspective. And, um, you know, if you, if, if, if you hold to that form of, mm -hmm. of world history and creation, um, uh, or it, it really is, there's revelation that comes in at different points. And I wonder if it could actually be both. If, if, it, if it isn't really a clear dividing line between. Yeah. You know, one, one or the other. Yeah. Well, at the very least, I think we can say that until, until modern times, you know, I would say beginning with the Renaissance, with kind of um, man starting to become the center of the universe, um, and certainly leading into um, um, the Enlightenment and since then. Uh, but up until that time, for all of history, um, people everywhere believed that they were not the pinnacle of, of what existed. There was something greater out there sure. that was other than themselves, whether it was good or evil or indifferent. Um, that, that was, if anything, that was the common experience of, of all humanity and, and still is for many today. Um, and I think, yeah, it seems like Lewis was making the point that, um, that there, there is a universal something in that and, um, it, it doesn't, yeah, and maybe it doesn't seem to even go away. Um, you know, ex numinous experiences don't even necessarily seem to go away, even if our worldview becomes modernized and we discredit exactly we discredit notions of anything greater than our, than the human the human mind. 
Yeah, for sure. I guess what I, maybe what part, a big part of what I'm wrestling is, is if humanity has through most of its history had the conviction that there is something real that is greater, more powerful, godlike on, on some level, even if that, that, mm -hmm. that concept doesn't fully understood or realized, um, how would they have known if it's real, um, without proof or direct encounter to them was proof. Uh, they, they, they would have considered, um, maybe acts of weather, uh, you know, they were worshiped, uh, the God of the sun or the God of whatever that, that, that caused, um, that's not, names aren't coming to mind, but some of the, some of the uh, civilizations that the, the Israelites encountered, um, you know, that, that sacrificed, mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of, of good crops, you know, um, those, those were proofs to them, but how, how would they have ever known that it's real? Um, well, I think, I think, uh, maybe the answer to that lies in the, it's the fact that it's an experience of the numinous, mm -hmm. um, people are encountered with something that overtakes them in their conscious experience. It's not an abstract idea. Mm -hmm. It's not that they, they saw thunderstorms and, and had an abstract idea about gods. I mean, they certainly did as well. And, mm -hmm. um, but, but Lewis here, I think is specifically talking about the experience of the numinous. Okay. Um, have, having a sense that something you're in the presence of something um, that is uh, that is greater than yourself, mm -hmm. and and not um, something you you don't quite have a, a grasp on. Yeah, I, I had a class in seminary on religious epistemology. Um, I think it's the study of knowing, if I remember correctly, and. Uh, that was a bit over over my head or I was a bit over my skis, as I say, with that. Uh, but I sure wish I remembered <laughs> more of the yeah. particulars now, because I think that's exactly what we're talking about. So uh, for the sake of time, I'll. He, his remaining argument, it, what he builds on with that, the idea of the numinous, he also talks about humanity having an innate sense of of morality. It can vary somewhat from one society to another, although he says, you know, at the core, they're they're much more alike than dissimilar than, than we might expect. They're much more alike than we, you know, we might might think. Um, but we have this sense of morality of what's right, what's wrong, some way, somehow, and all of us know that we don't live up to our own sense of morality. What is right, what is wrong, we live with that awareness, with that guilt on some level. And he says that numinous itself doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad. I think he describes mm -hmm. it as beyond good or evil. Um, but so morality itself has to come as a revelation to us from the outside. Or it's presumably another trick of the mind. And then the, what he calls the third stage in religious development is connecting the numinous with morality. Once again, this is not a, either a mind trick or a revelation. Uh, he makes the claim that um, the numinous doesn't necessarily have to go hand in hand with morality. I think there's he even talks about that's something we might want to avoid. 
if we think of the numinous as something much more powerful uh, and mysterious and beyond us, uh, it might be very scary to actually link that to a, a code of ethics that we have to, to to link them as being sort of a, an enforcer of ethics, I think is, is kind of what he's getting at. Um, and that there are, you know, forms of religion. I think he talks about paganism as an example, but that, that don't necessarily have uh, strict codes of morality and there's codes of ethics or morality codes of conduct and society that don't necessarily link up with directly with a, a religious or numinous um, worldview yeah. either. I, but yeah, I believe he says he, they, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that I think that what he said was non-moral religion okay, and yeah. non-religious morality existed yeah. and still exists. And I, I think he's making the point that, it's actually, if we're going to try to spin reality in our favor, we actually would want to keep the two of those apart. Okay. Um, it, it makes more sense for us to, um, to do that. And yet we find, um, we, we find in all religions that those, those two end up connecting. And he, he talks about, here's a, a quote I actually wrote down, copied he says it was the Jews who fully and unambiguously identified the awful presence haunting black mountaintops and thunderclouds with the righteous Lord who loveth righteousness. Yeah. So that quote they're the ones who, as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think he's, he's also saying that again, we, we don't have to link the two, the numinous and morality or ethics. God and morality or ethics uh, as a, you know, example of the numinous. Um, but they do tend to sort of bend towards each other, even if, even unintentionally. It's something on the one hand that we want to avoid, as I said a moment ago, but I think he says they do tend to sort of drift toward overlapping. Um, and then he concludes the chapter by talking about the fourth stage, the the sort of the culmination of the preceding three stages of the numinous and the sense of morality and then linking the numinous and morality. And he says it's an actual historical event and it's a, a short page or two, uh, but just very well said, uh, talking about um, Christ entering the world, entering our reality as both God and man, fully God, fully man, living a life 30 plus years among humanity in person incarnated you know emmanuel god is with us dying and being resurrected um and that in some way his life his death his resurrection have actually enabled us to be reconciled to god and to relate to him in a in a, a positive way um he had an excellent quote, quote from, from this first chapter, Christianity is not the conclusion of a philosophical debate on the origins of the universe. It is a catastrophic historical event following on the long spiritual preparation of humanity, which I have described, which again is why he was sort of focusing on, you know, sort of pre-Christian history uh, more than anything else in the preceding pages. And then another sentence down, he says, in a sense, it creates rather than solves the problem of pain. 
for pain would be no problem unless side by side with our daily experience of this painful world, we had received what we think a good assurance that ultimate reality is righteous and loving. So here we are just sort of in the, in the weeds, in the swamp, you know, trying to figure out what in the world is he getting at? And this whole time, you know, it's, it's interesting. He's just, he's trying to actually lay out how we even have a problem of pain to begin with. Um, was was really interesting and, and really well done, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of turns the, the initial question on its head because the initial question is, how can there be a loving God or any God mm -hmm. um, if we have the problem of pain? And by the time you reach the end of chapter chapter one, he's basically saying, if, if you can see that there's a problem of pain, then in a sense you have to concede that there is both a numinous and, uh, uh, you know, somewhere that we derive um, a higher morality. Yeah. Some standard of, to judge by. Yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, you end up, you end up coming back to God simply by acknowledging that pain is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. That was a bit of a twist and a, a good one. Well, I think I'll pause this episode here. Josh and I actually went on to discuss the second chapter in The Problem of Pain on Divine Omnipotence, but uh, I'll save that for the following episode for the sake of time. Thank you to Josh for joining me again and for being an excellent dis discussion partner. Thank you for listening, for following along with this conversation. If it's been of any interest or value to you, I uh, would love if, if you could share with a friend or two. That would be uh, much appreciated. Uh, God bless you till we talk again.